0: Evening, everyone. Yeah, I think I think we're live. I think it's happening. Everyone is here. It's it's time to start uh, another 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 episode in the in the ongoing Carmen series, and it will be the last one. So we might go we might go long, uh, we might go long. Hello, everyone. Uh, let me know how the time balances. You should be hearing me. I can see green lines on OBS in front of me, which is usually a good sign. Oh, episode one hundred and thirteen, the Carmen derailment. A uh, detailed look at the final report, part four this this is the picture that's appearing at the start of the episode but anyone who's coming back to this in in the future um this is definitely gonna get renamed because i'm gonna go back and actually think about what we've covered in each of these episodes and, and, and sort of make them signpost them a little bit better but uh, anyway I, i've got a slide for that later let's uh, let's get on with it shall we so uh oh yeah I, i'm just gonna out just immediately start this with a with a with a content warning that this is going to contain descriptions and images from rail crashes uh, and the news will include that too so, um, so yeah, it's nothing – it's not actually anything particularly graphic, but it's it's the sort of thing that can be quite triggering and upsetting for anyone who's been involved or um, might find it very upsetting uh, just thinking and, and, and hearing the descriptions of of, uh, of injuries and, and, and descriptions and, and pictures of damaged vehicles that can be quite triggering. So, anyway, just a bit of a, a heads-up. And I'm going to content warning again when we get into the thick of it as well. So, before we go on with the news, we need to um, – look at the covid stats a very quick look at the stats really um just showing that uh let's get the old scribbles up just showing that that rail is 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 reaching the point where it's it's starting to it's reaching bus area actually i've just scribbled over to the point where you can't see it's kind of reaching the point weirdly there's a single point here which is where we have the last reliable stats although they keep getting updated and and by the way increased every time they get updated as well but uh yeah because there's some data from all the way back here that's been updated as well, and all of it's lifting the numbers. Weirdly, road and rail have dropped to, anyway, to meet which is a bit strange. Same levels, anyway. Oh, so road, road is, is at one hundred percent. Bus is, has bounced back a bit, which is good. um Rail is sitting around about the eighty percent mark. As as Phil Phil Hay um, kind of records these slightly differently. He's he's got his rolling his twenty eight day rolling average, which is now sitting at eighty percent. Um and uh yeah so 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 rail is sitting around about the 80 to 85 percent mark which is good yeah, that, that's that's good news i'm surprised it's sitting where it is but we'll we'll keep watching timetables uh when is the next time well i suppose the new timetable was introduced that might I, i'm surprised it's not resulted in a hit we'll see anyway um yeah let's uh we, as ever we shall keep our eyes on this i'm I'm going to continue to include this within the episodes as we go forwards um because i think it's important too um, uh, yeah, uh, until they stop publishing it, we'll keep looking at it. Anyway, right, uh, oh yes. <laughs> to be fair, Transport for Ireland believes we all deserve our fair share of good news. Fair weather fans off to big matches, puck fair party goats, and especially all the daily snails pacers. Not fair. Which is why fares on buses, trains and trams across the Transport for Ireland network have been reduced by a fair whack. An average of 20% in fact. Which makes it fair game for cleaner, greener, cheaper travel. So what are you waiting for? Let's get going, fairly lively. There you go. That is how you do advertising public transport. Nice one, Transport for Ireland. Love that. Absolutely love it. Um, yes, big twenty percent fare drop on average across Ireland, uh, and it's just this, this is what you this is what you should be doing, folks. This is how you do it good grief this is how you do it um yeah i mean it's no it's it's not necessarily a uh, game you know it's not necessarily world world shakingly uh cheap fares but it's a slash of 20 percent. and they, they've already been trying this on certain rail routes and other uh kind of routes and it's been shown to result in a um in a 10 leap in ridership and quite a lot of um of you know where they introduce this fair drop people are you're traveling by train as much as they were pre-covid so yes this is how you do it so i i, I know that there are a lot of people who have worked very hard on well anyway okay we'll, we'll we'll get to the england sale momentarily so that's ireland um scotland has also done a fair drop uh it's it, by some measures smaller by other measures larger but it's unlike uh ireland who've just outright done it across the board and intend to keep it that way uh scotland are just doing another sale so they're doing a sale half price ticket sale for off peak only um in scotland um you know okay fine but it's not quite as good as let's face it it's not it's not a permanent reduction in in in, in the in the cost of travel is it so mm, yeah uh so that's fine uh meanwhile in england there's whatever the, the great british rail sale was which okay they, 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 they sold some tickets uh, they then used they did some very bizarre stats in this little poster. these are very strange I I, I don't I, the, the, the free takeaways thing I don't I don't even understand that statistic they actually took it out of the press release. I I know people have worked hard on this and, and Ireland has got a much more simple straightforward system but that's how you do it you just do an outright. That's how you do it. This is not how you do it. If you want to really make change, that's how you do it. Not this. It's it's very frustrating. And also, if you want to see what like uh, a nice, friendly, tongue-in-cheek advert looks like, Grant Shapps, it looks like how that advert was, not your patronising buff. So anyway, yeah, there we go. Isn't it great to be in the United Kingdom? Um, bring, on reunific- uh, bring on unification, Bring on unification. So I'm saying. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, uh, you know, while we put little, little sort of adver- little advertising sales out, um, you know, large sections of, of, of Britain's coast are going to be subsumed in water. Uh, Fairburn, is is probably the uh, the first village that will be completely obliterated by rising sea levels um, because the Welsh government decided to not bother to do anything about it, which is fair enough because it'd be incredibly costly for a very small population. wise it like six, seven hundred people? uh who can just move so this there's there's no point defending it which i think possibly means that the little railway will also be obliterated i can't remember where the little railway is but i think that also will get obliterated feel free to correct me on that everyone um yes so so there you go um marvelous oh yeah uh the tssa uh that's that's it it's my my union where's my where's my where's my card there it is yeah there it is i'm not going to show you my number but uh yeah, there they are. The Transport Salary Staffs Association. I'm waving around my members card. It's, it's here. You can't see it because I've not got a big face on. If I put my little face in the corner, uh, look. There it is. Look, hooray! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, TSSA is 125 years old this year. We're gonna have a couple, probably a couple of TSSA episodes um, uh, going for us this year. Uh, I, I wasn't at the conference because. I just didn't have the time to, to do that and was juggling family and bits and pieces. So, but, um, but yeah, it was, uh, the conference has been, has concluded, I think. I don't think t- today was, it was yesterday, the last day, or perhaps today's the last day of the conference. Um, yeah, 125 years of, uh, of, of a union. It's not, it's not bad going. Um, so yeah, yeah, uh, Gareth Williams, yes, that was Fairburn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so 125 years of TSSA. Stay tuned on that front. But uh, hello to TSSA union folks, and uh, also ignore all the union busting stuff that's going on. RMT folks, uh, solidarity, etc. Um, right. It's 20 years since Potter's Bar. though it was yesterday, and um, to the day. And uh, yesterday it was to the day. Anyway, this is an incident that that ended the subcontracting of track maintenance uh for for rail infrastructure in, in gb it was brought back in-house it was incorporated into the infrastructure manager the, who, who you know rail track collapsed in and itself uh network rail took that up and network rail uh, announced uh in the aftermath of this in 2003 that they would take all it was almost kind of as network Rail were created really they, 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 they would take all um track maintenance in-house uh, in this case it was jarvis in the case of hatfield it was balfour bt um uh, yeah, just, just, you know, it was one of, you know, a sequence of miserable failures of the way that privatization was set up. Um, and, and it killed seven people, six passengers and, and, uh, and a pedestrian who was uh, a lady who was underneath the bridge and got killed by falling masonry from the parapet of the bridge, uh, just south of, or at the, at the end of the platform, um, as this thing barreled its way towards, uh, the platform canopy. Uh, yeah, pretty appalling incident. It was as a result of, a, of an of SNC splitting under the train. At some point, we might pick through the report and, and, and kind of go through in detail. But uh, after after the current report, we'll perhaps perhaps leave detailed deep dives of, of rail incidents for a while, uh, unless you want them, Patreon, pe- Patreon people. If you if you want more of this, then obviously you know tell me such. But anyway, 20 years since Potter's bar, and um, yeah, it's interesting to interesting to think about the context of this and what we learned off the back of this. Um, whilst also uh, you know while, while government is pushing and forcing and squeezing network rail to reduce staff numbers and to generally kind of threaten the safety of the railway you know network rail because they have to are say are, are going to say that that's not what's going to happen. but I, given the staff given the feedback I'm getting from staff about overtime and f- recruitment freezes on and that's cl- often clerical roles, you know my sorts of roles rather than frontline staff who are, genuinely at the front line of keeping railways safe and i know a few of them who are saying much the same thing i I don't see that the the government's pressure is is compatible let alone the idea of even putting safety to one side you know i I make the 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 case that the government is is pressuring network rail and the railways to shrink at a time when they need to be expanding rapidly the idea that then on top of that they're now threatening safety with 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 pressure on network rail uh, reductions in staffing is, is is really worrying so yeah um this is that 365 uh, 365 uh, in network southeast it is yeah they, did, they hadn't rebranded it by 2002 so anyway and uh, you know that was 20 years ago as we know with carmen you know this this is this is relevant today and indeed you know we've okay the, thankfully this this sunny side off um derailment here you can see the the, the lovely um there's a lovely museum next door to where this derailment has happened. This this didn't hurt anyone. It's an empty coaching stop move, and it looks like the points have... Something's happened with the points. I don't exactly know what's happened. Hopefully, we'll find out exactly what's happened uh, so we understand what it is and, and can ensure it hasn't happened again. But if a set of points is split again, then, yeah, I'll, I'll let you join the dots. And, uh, you know, this is why I gave a, uh, a um, bit of a content warning. Yeah, there's been a fatal crash in uh, Münchendorf. Um, uh, yeah. A rail crash. Two people have died. Uh, with I don't exactly know what's happened here. It looks it looks awfully like a head-on collision on a single track section, but I, I, I don't want to jump to conclusions. But there's there's certainly been a it's a pretty horrendous collision. Obviously the vehicle is very robust, but you know it's it's resulted in people you know two fatalities and, and, and additional serious injuries. So not good. You know, rail safety is critical. It's not just in the UK um, where where safety is an issue. This continues to be an issue in lots of places. Uh, this is in, uh, yeah, in, uh, in Austria. Um, yes, so let's, uh, let us, well, I'll put that back up there. Let's get on with the episode. Uh, and this is the last episode of the Carmen series, uh, for, for now at least, unless something else comes out. And we're gonna, we are going to finally get around to, not only are we going to look at the report, we're going to finish, uh, kind of a flip through the report, uh, the detail in that. We're going to summarize it. Go through and sort of summarize the results. Um, yeah, we're going to we're going to see uh, kind of review everything that we've learned. Pick up a few points that I've captured. I think uh, re- remind ourselves what we looked at in the earlier episodes because we've had four of these and they've been they're quite spread out. So we'll remind ourselves of all that stuff um, and hopefully by the end of it we'll have captured a decent amount of useful learning for us to kind of recall uh, and and some stuff that if anyone or any of us here are practicing in the industry we can remind us of things we can assert ourselves on um if we're receiving pressure for whatever it is you know, given given current c- current climate or you know but literally metaphorically so let's get on with it um welcome to tonight's rail now everyone <laughs> The InCity 225 fades away. There's a few of you um, saying in the chat that it looks it, it was actually just one train involved. Yeah, I don't know anything about the incident. I I, I I just had it had it flick up and thought I'd quickly grab it and pop it in the news. So um yeah no I I am not so much speculating as just uh, saying I don't know. Go and go and have a look at that incident. Uh, what 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 official news there is about that incident if you want to read about it the, the Munchendorf mentioned incident. Um yeah so we've done we've actually done this will be the fifth Carmen episode if you include the uh, our look at the interim report. and I'm going to rename these and just sort of um do a bit of uh rename that or re- rename each of them and, and, and sort of restructure it so it's obvious um so it's obvious what what each of these is so the things that are in brackets i'll probably put put different words in there and it's just so it's obvious what's going on for each episode so you can follow them and and, and find them easily and understand what's what um so yeah i will do that as as i said earlier there's this is a content warning for descriptions uh and images from rail crashes uh including descriptions of injuries. so if you don't like that then um uh yeah then then uh turn off now um in audio only form it's probably fine but uh i'm going to be describing some things uh and there are things as ever like with this there are sections that i read out verbatim because it's kind of they're they're worded as concisely as they could be so yeah so that if, if you're getting frustrated with me reading things out verbatim it's because i think they're important and i think it's relevant to just pick pick particular bits out and we'll skip over the parts so let's get back to the report shall we uh this is where we were we were at can everyone see my mouse yeah you can it's feet coming through um so, um, oh, and uh, yeah, yeah, okay. So yeah, Jonas uh, Geisvinkler is saying one casualty in Münchendorf, not two. Oh, that's good. So yeah, my uh, my the 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 news report that I looked at said two. So um, yeah, I'm glad, like uh, pleased to be corrected, particularly as it's uh, in terms of reducing the number of fatalities. So right, let's. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid we're really going to get into the thick of it because we were just at the start of the section on causes of injury, which means going through in detail of of the injuries and because and, 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 this is part of a this is part of crash investigation you look at every you look at all the evidence you can including injuries including you know whether it's post-mortems or just you know understanding the injuries of of, of people who are on the train because that teaches you not only does that give you information about what happened if, if you're not sure exactly the sequence of events but also it allows you to understand where we can learn more about perhaps train interiors or uh uh, you know, where we position seats, whatever it ha- might particularly might be, or, you know, the r- robustness of gla- panes of glass, all these types of things. Uh, these reports allow us, you know, information about uh, about making the railway safer and, and better. So, uh, the investigation analyzed the physical injuries sustained by the passengers and staff on board the train to determine severity, likely causes, and any safety lessons that could be learned. Yeah, just like we said, right? Um, the analysis has not attempted to capture and assess the degree of psychological trauma suffered by the survivors. Yeah, it's difficult to capture that in, in a report, and there's there's only so much you can learn, you know, from materially learn from from that. Certainly in the case, in this type of of technical report. So yeah, as I say, post mortem statements from medical professionals who treated survivors and witness statements, as well as photographic evidence, inspection of the damaged vehicles, and reconstruction of vehicle movements during the derailment. So. Um, and again, there's, there's images here showing the damage. This is, this, is, this is the leading end of Coach A, which is the the coach that was immediately behind the power car um, as, it was coming, as the power car was peeling off the bridge. Of the nine people on the train, three suffer, suffered fatal uh, injuries, the train driver, the conductor, and one passenger. A further three passengers suffered serious injuries. Three others, including the conductor travelling as a passenger, suffered minor injuries. For those who suffered fatal and serious injuries, all of whom had multiple injuries, a more detailed analysis was carried out to grade each injury. Uh, this was done using the internationally recognised abbreviated injury scale uh, scoring system. I'm going to bring my little face up. Um, in this system, each injury is scored from uh, one for a minor injury to six for an injury that is thought to be incompatible with life. Crikey, that's an unpleasant euphemism. Using these individual injury scores, an overall injury severity score was evaluated for each person. Uh, I've not come across this system before, actually. I don't, I don't, I haven't seen this used. Um, yeah, I haven't actually seen this used in previous reports. Uh, or I don't remember being used in this way. Um, <clears throat> yes. Um, so uh, the distribution of injuries on the train, location of the occupants, injury severity scores, and likely primary cause of injury is summarised in Table Seven. Um, so, so we can go through and see that the you know, the leading power car. You know the driver's fatality was as a result of secondary impact with the cab's windscreen and interior the conductor was killed by a loss of survival space in the leading vestibule um two serious injuries in coach d, d- oh actually i was forgive me i was describing coach earlier i showed a picture of coach a and said it was the one behind the power car that's not correct it was the, the that was the coach at the back forgive me coach d was the coach at the front of the train um yeah, both passengers, uh, who were seriously injured in coach D, um, secondary impact with the vehicle interior, lacerations, and ejection from the vehicle near the end of its travel. It's just you do not want to be fired from a train, you know, ejected from a train while it's rolling around. That that really is a failure again. And HSTs have been commenting on this. The pe- the glass is not, you know, the glass is not uh, up to standard in terms of keeping people within the train. Um, there's a passenger in the leading vestibule of the coach C who is ejected from the from the vehicle uh, and and then impacted with terrain uh and then there's yes a passenger in the trailing hat yeah so then other passengers there's a serious injury of secondary impact with the vehicle interior and then two other minor injuries with with impact with the vehicle interiors um and then the minor injury of the the, the, the conductor injured themselves during egress of the train uh, at coach a so that gives you an idea of the sorts of injuries and you can understand the forces involved, You know, huge forces involved in this incident. Um, yeah, so... So, yeah the, the, so the, yeah, the loss of survival space, ejection of the passengers through the open gangway at the leading end of Coach C was probably when it struck the wooded bank. Uh, and the primary cause of serious injury to three of the survivors was secondary impact with vehicle interiors. Two passengers were seated in forward-facing seats and one was in a rearward-facing seat. Um, both coaches C and D underwent extreme movements and rolled on to, over onto their roofs before they came to rest. These movements would have subjected passengers to accelerations in the vertical, lateral, longitudinal directions. Um, yeah, so that's kind of giving an idea of the movement of, of the sort of experience that, that passengers would have had in these uh, in the trains. The two survivors in coach D also received multiple cuts and lacerations um, from broken glass of the windows. Um, medical experts assisting the investigation considered that the shards of broken glass. Could have caused the lacerations, but it's also possible some were caused by exposed edges of damaged interior fixtures. Um both of the passengers at the leading end of Coach D reported finding themselves outside the coach when the vehicle finally came to rest, but could not recall how they got there. Good grief. It just doesn't really does not um does not bear thinking about. It. Uh yeah, Crikey. Uh so it's yeah it's it's grim isn't it it really is grim yeah um the minor injuries to three people comprise bruising um sprained ankle yeah so so despite the severity of the fires on the site uh, none of the occupants suffered injuries as a result of fire at the time of the accident no one was in coach b and the fire broke out a considerable time after the accident we'll get to the fire it's a relevant thing so that's the injuries and, and in terms of learning what we can from there we'll we'll see as we go into crashworthiness i think we pick up on some of those injuries so, here we go, crashworthiness. Crashworthiness performance of the vehicles. The, the HST, the high-speed train, was first introduced into mainline service in the mid-1970s. The British Rail Mark III coach was design- designed as a monocoque structure and manufactured from welded mild steel. The structure was designed to a set of static load cases to enable it to withstand the rigours of normal service operation and resist abnormal loading in accident scenarios. These requirements were similar to current standards for static strength, but did not include the additional crashworthiness standards to which modern vehicles are designed to improve survivability in accidents, such as energy-absorbing vehicle ends, or crumple zones, and anti-override features. During a long service life on mainland railways, HSTs have been involved in some major accidents, the most recent being the derailment at Ufton-Nervit in 2004 and collisions at Ladbroke Grove in 99 and Southall in 97. Historically, they have generally performed well in terms of maintaining structural integrity and protecting occupants. The behaviour of the train at Carmel was affected by characteristics of its design. Some of these positively affected the course of events and minimised the risk to occupants, while others adversely affected the outcome. These are discussed in the following paragraphs. So we're going to start. With the driver's cab, uh, the cab of the leading power car uh, impacted the embankment below the bridge. The resultant speed of impact is estimated to have been around 45 miles an hour. So it's not that's not a you know it's not a tremendously high speed of impact there. Yeah, the structure of the driver's cab was manufactured from glass-reinforced polymer and bolted directly to a bulkhead at the forward end of the engine compartment and the underframe of the power car. Just to remind everyone, in fact, we're going to flick. Uh, we're going to flick back just to remind everyone what that looked like. Here is what. So if you can imagine just the shape of the front of an HST placed onto a essentially a flatbed and and bolted to a bulkhead. There is no structural. There are no structural properties in the cab. Yeah, you know, you, see, you can see there what 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 remains of the cab. It's just a turned bathtub. Yeah, that's uh, that's it. This is unlike most other modern train cabs which have a steel or aluminium cab superstructure covered by a relatively thin non-structural GRP fairing that provides an aerodynamic and aesthetic shape. The GRP cab structure, detached from its underframe mountings and and the rear bulkhead, then broke up into several pieces on impact with the embankment. The cab roof, windscreen and left-hand side remained together and were found a distance of around 22 metres from the power car towards the bottom of the slope, close to where the leading end of Coach B came to rest. The driver was found nearby absolutely horrific. The cab floor, left and right, hand doors, driver's desk and seat detached to the left of the power car and came to rest at various positions, either close to the power car or further down the slope. The cab was subjected to severe impact conditions. The speed of impact was significantly beyond the collision speeds for which even modern cabs are designed to provide protection for occupants. For example, the cab ends of more modern trains were designed to absorb energy and protect the driver in collisions with an identical train at a closing speed of up to 60 kilometres an hour, 37 miles an hour. Later train designs, uh, since around 2010, were designed for a closing speed of up to 36 km an hour, 22 miles an hour, in line with European technical specifications for interoperability of the TSIs. These design collision speeds are equivalent to a single train colliding with an immovable object at half the design speed. The estimated speed of impact between the power car and the ground at current was over twice the higher of the uh, equivalent design speeds into an immovable object. And given the severity of the collision conditions, significant damage to this or any other cab structure was inevitable. Yeah, fair enough, but I'm hoping there is a but because the idea of saying an upturned bathtub is basically the same as a as a full cab structure is problematic, um, and I, I dare say this paragraph is going to is going to point that out. Driving cabs of HSTs and more modern designs, just uh, trains designed before uh, GMRT 2100, 100, uh, which is the um, that's 2000. Okay, yeah, 2010, but actually that's referring to standard really that came in in 1994. Um, those those are not fitted with seat belts or any other specific secondary impact protection such as airbags and knee bolsters for the driver. Train driving cabs designed uh, after 2100 came into force. Uh, uh, sorry, after 2100 came into force are required to undergo a dynamic crash test um, or validated simulation to prove specified injury criteria not exceeded. So basically, they do a crash test. They, they get a crash test dummy in and they do a crash test. However, these more modern cabs are not fitted with seatbelts or airbags for secondary impact protection which previous research has identified as feasible. A significant amount of research work has been undertaken by the rail industry into providing better protection for train drivers. The earliest known work in the UK on improved driver protection measures was carried out as part of British Rail's Crash Worthiness Development Programme between 1992 and 1996, and culminated in a full-scale dynamic crash test to validate the efi- efficacy of various devices such as airbags and knee bolsters in minimising secondary impact injuries. Those tests confirmed that secondary impact protection for drivers was technically feasible. Subsequently, after Labbrook Grove, uh, studies were carried out into possible options for retrospectively improving the safety of HST cabs in accidents. Labrook Grove acknowledged that it was that they were hopeless. Uh, more recently, the RSSB undertook a project um, optimising driving cab d- design for driver protection in a collision. Uh, that concluded. Relatively, even relatively low-speed collisions can result in the drivers sustaining serious or fatal injuries, and that it was technically feasible to provide protection for drivers in frontal collisions with a similar train at closing speeds of up to 50 miles an hour. Um, a viability assessment concluded that following the introduction of safety systems such as uh, TPWS (Train Protection Warning System), the costs of measures such as airbags and knee bolsters and seat belts would have been grossly disproportionate to benefits, and widespread installation within the industry would require wider industry consensus. Yeah, okay fine there's quite a long way from seatbelts and airbags to zero crashworthiness protection whatsoever which is what the hst has although the research work today had focused on train collisions carmen demonstrated that train drivers are vulnerable to fatal injuries arising from secondary impact with the cab interior and high energy derailments yes so fine um and also i suppose that paragraph is really acknowledging that a lot of research has looked at um uh, yeah, a lot of research has looked at... In the past, we've assumed that train collisions, trains colliding with other trains, is is the most dangerous thing and the most common way that we're going to see incidents. But actually, as signalling has got better, as TPWS has, has come in, it's almost eliminated train-on-train collisions. Salisbury was a rare case of a of a low adhesion event resulting in a train collision. But with increasing infrastructure pressures from climate change and potentially you know reduced maintenance, the likelihood of trains derailing... Into terrain and 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 a crash like Carmen is more likely. Um, Although you know, likewise Watford was a was a combination of both, wasn't it? It was a terrains colliding with each other um, as a result of, of of failed failed earthwork. Vehicle structures. The body shells of the Mark III coaches generally performed well in the accident, resulting in only limited loss of survival space, even in coaches C and D, which had rolled over onto their roofs, and resisted injurious penetration of passenger spaces during impacts with other vehicles and bogies. However, there was a complete loss of survival space in the leading vestibule of Coach D, where the train conductor was located. This likely occurred when Coach D overrode the trailing end of the power car. So, you know, as the power car was going this way, there's a coach behind it which continued forwards. The power car was decelerating and, and Coach D actually overrode and, and, and caught up with it and, and kind of crushed into it, telescoped into it. Um, so, yeah. Uh, the vestibule is protected by four body end pillars comprising two gangway pillars either side of the flexible gangway and two corner pillars next to the doors. All the pillars at the leading end were sheared off at their bases. Crikey. Uh, The Mark Three coach design load, no, These paragraphs start getting fiddly. The Mark III coach design load cases included compressive forces applied to the body end structure. This is basically saying what what tests there were. Um, And uh, yes, the pillars provide a degree of protection. They're vulnerable when overriding occurs and collision forces exceed the strength of the pillars. There's a particular issue on um, on the lower overridden vehicle. yeah, so it's just describing the challenges you have with an overriding, a telescoping event um, with Mark three coaches. Mark three coaches predate the current requirements for vehicle ends to be energy absorbing, and so when the pillars shear off, the body end structure loses its ability to resist intrusion into survival spaces. Mark three coaches do not have a door separating the vestibule at the end of the vehicle from the flexible gangway, which some modern trains have. There is no requirement in standards to have such doors, and some modern trains have coach end openings extending to almost the full width of the carriages. Consequently, in the event of separation between two vehicles, occupants load- located in the vestibule at the ends of coaches are at significantly higher risk of ejection if there are no gangway doors. Yeah. So, here we get to a thing that's, to be honest, a bit of a yes, it's a feature of these aging trains, but it's a bit of a red herring, really. Um, but it's it relevant and, and it's something that was certainly looked at, given the age of the vehicles and the work, the extensive work that was undertaken in their, uh, in their refurbishment. So this is corrosion, by the way. Given the age of the vehicles, it's unsurprising that damaged areas of the Mark III coach structures were found to have corrosion. Uh, the RAIB considered whether the extent of corrosion may have significantly affected the way the coach structures deformed and in particular the loss of survival space observed in Coach D. Um, so they looked at corrosion at the body end pillars, uh, along the body sides, and where the body side skin panels uh, split. So they're looking at various areas where there's corrosion. They observed corrosion at the base of um, the collision and corner pillars on the leading end of coach D. Uh, in some areas, five millimetre thick plates have been reduced to between three and three point five millimetres from corrosion. It's quite a substantial reduction in section. Crikey! There is also corrosion in the leading part of the underframe, which supports these pillars. Uh, corrosion repairs were undertaken on coach d by WabTech from june to august 2019 as part of the power door modifications during the conversions that occurred before may 2020 which included the Carmen hst set no formal corrosion allowances were specified for the body end pillars um so under engineering judgments were made uh, fine uh Wabtech reports that subsequently in may 2020 guidance was introduced to assist staff deciding when repairs due to corrosion were needed so there's no specific guide um yeah, no specific guide, but there was um, sort of, there were, so, uh, until guidance introduced in May 2020. So quite a lot of repairs were undertaken before that. Records for corrosion repairs provided by Wabtec indicate that some local- localized corrosion had been identified on the two gangway pillars at the leading end of Coach D, and repairs were authorized. Uh, annoyingly, though, frustratingly, there were no photographic records of the work actually done, and the pillars were too severely damaged in the accident for a meaningful retrospective assessment of this work. So that's, that's a frustrating thing, um, you know keep records of that sort of repair essentially loss of material due to corrosion of the pillars would have weakened the body and structure to some extent the forces applied to the pillars in the interaction with the leading power car are not known and therefore the investigation was not able to assess whether or not the original strength of the pillars would have been sufficient to resist the applied forces so that's without corrosion would the same thing have happened um, they, they weren't able to conclude that um yeah, it's interesting. A few people saying that corrosion is becoming an increasing issue on a lot of older stock. Yeah, um, that's and, and one of the recommendations, which we'll get to in this, um, certainly covers that point. Um, yeah, so so Wabtech looked at, they, they'd already undertaken finite element analysis to to assess how their power door modifications impacted on the, the structural capacity at the end of the doors. And they'd established that their additional structure that, that they added actually improved the overall performance of the body end Um uh under the the, the kind of the, the design load cases um they also indicate there was some scope for uniform material loss due to corrosion before the body and structure would have started to yield locally okay so there's some stuff about the way that there, there's some uh, analyzed behavior um uh, yeah so the rib reckon that uh, although there were pockets of corrosion with more than 20% material loss on coach d provided the material loss in the area around the joints that fractured was localized, there should have been sufficient material left to be able to carry the, the kind of the ultimate loads that were um, specified in the standards, um, you know, uh, two 2100, that is. Um, yeah, it's also possible that even if there had not been any corrosion, the force involved uh, would have been sufficiently high to shear the piers. I think that's quite a reasonable assessment. There's a lot of, there was clearly a lot of corrosion, but actually it's difficult to, it's difficult to come to the conclusion that that would have been, problematic because corrosion doesn't necessarily happen where the most load is it's not fatigue corrosion this is corrosion just from getting eaten by by moisture and and, and so on so um you know the load pads might never have actually got anywhere near the areas of corrosion and, and so it's difficult to come to an assessment of exactly what the impact of it would be it's, it's sort of fair enough um a significant crease was observed along the left-hand side of coach d below the window line there was also a corresponding crease on the right-hand side above the above the windows Um, This creasing led to a loss of cross-sectional shape in the leading half of the body shell and significant loss of survival space in that area, but did not result in splitting the body shell along the crease line. Um, Examinations of the exposed structure revealed no evidence of significant degradation of the structural members by corrosion. Uh, The creasing appeared to have been caused by mechanical overload, most likely when Coach D rolled onto its uh, roof uh, and Coach A landed on it. Having already lost its body, leading body end structure, it's likely that Coach D could no longer maintain its cross-sectional shape when the weight of the leading half of Coach A came to rest on its leading end. Um, yeah, vertical splitting uh, was, was observed on all the coaches, but particularly on Coaches C and D. Um, uh, yeah, I think we, we looked at those uh, in, in the previous, in Figure 82 earlier, I think, in fact. Yeah, you can sort of see, yeah, you can see some of the, oh, wait a minute, no. Oh, there's, there's one coming up, actually. Okay, fine. Yeah, we've got figure eighty two is coming up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, because the Mark three design, uh, because the Mark three coach is designed as a monocoque structure, the observed splitting of the skin panels is also likely to have aggravated the deformation of coach D. So here you go. So here's um, figures eighty one and eighty two showing the way that creasing was happening. You know, a crease, a pinch. You know, essentially like paper. You know, a crease was forming. Um, and as soon as you get that hinge forming, then the structure, the, the, the rollover strength of that, of that vehicle is going to be severely impacted. It's interesting, isn't it? They say, they talk, the report is pretty gently euphemistic about the behavior of the HST, of the Mark Three coaches. Whereas, I, you know, given these pictures, I, I really does look far more catastrophic than they describe, you know. Uh, survival space is gone where that um, crushing has occurred. So couplers, another absolutely critical feature. HSTs are fitted with alliance couplers, um, which were not able to withstand the forces and relative vehicle movements during the derailment. All the vehicles became uncoupled except at the interface of Coach A and the trailing power car. So that's the very last cu- kind of coupler. That's the only one that, that that remained intact. The uncoupling allowed the vehicles to scatter, to roll over, and increase the risk of secondary impact with infrastructure and in other vehicles and their bogies. Uh, the typical failure mode of the coupler is fracture of either the upper or lower half of the knuckles of the coupler. These are knuckle couplers that look a bit like kind of like this. Um, so it's the, and they're, they're, kind of split into sections. So they kind of have like a top and a bottom bit and the, the top section, uh, or bottom sections were you know, the upper or lower halves of the knuckles were failing, uh, the same failing mode of the Alliance coupler was also noted, uh, after Nervit. So this is an acknowledged issue, um, here. So, oh, uh, Tom's asked a question, actually. Tom has asked, can the required crumple zones, etc. be retrofitted to old stock? No, they can't. Um, not, not, not at a cost less than, um, replacing the stock to be honest uh, it was already incredibly costly to fit a you know every single door fitting to the mark 3 stock was essentially bespoke because it had to fit with the fact that these things had deformed and were not made manufactured particularly consistently so retrofitting uh old stock like mark threes is just inc- int- incredibly expensive um yeah so uh yeah, I'd argue that that's likely to be, and we'll get to some cost comparisons later. But I'd argue that'd be likely to be more expensive you know, as expensive as just procuring new trains. So um, couplers. Oh yeah, you've got some nice pictures showing that the the knuckle couplers there, those 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 alliance couplers, and the way that they've just failed, they just disintegrated, they fold a bits. Um, they are not good couplers. So bogey retention, another critical element uh, of, of a problem with the Mark threes. Uh, so bogey retention, the leading bogie, the leading power car, was found under this vehicle on the embankment with the heavy-duty wire rope retention strap broken this indicated that the bogey had been retained until the leading power car impacted the embankment below the bridge none of the other power car bogies became detached so power car bogies actually reasonably robust and and, and reasonably well connected to the, to the vehicle although um yeah the yeah the, 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 there, there are other reasons obviously the rear power car didn't didn't come come through many forces at all really compared to the the, the front one however Mark three coaches, uh, unlike uh, two you know, post 2100 vehicles, are not fitted with any form of bogey retention in the vertical direction. So that's, you know, if you've got the bogie, if you've got the, the vehicle here and the bogie underneath it, that means there's no, you know, with the wheels, the wheels here, the bogie is the thing that holds the wheels onto the vehicle. Um, uh, that, that there's no vertical protection. So as soon as the vehicle body lifts off, those bogies are gone, right? Um, and this allowed the vehicle bodies to lift off their bogies during the derailment. Yeah, the fact that they could do that conversely, the vehicle lifts. But likewise, uh, if the bogies and the vehicles, so yes, if the vehicle lifts, the bogies drop off. But likewise, uh, if some force on the vehicle, the vehicle can lift off while the bogies are still on the track, which is also not good. Um, This allowed the vehicle bodies to lift off their bogies during derailment, with the exception of the trailing bogie of coach A. All the other coach bogies detached. In nearly all cases, there was minimal damage to the body-mounted center pivots, indicating that separation had occurred by the vehicle bodies lifting off the bogies. Most likely as a result of severe pitching movements. So uh, that's pitch is is where the vehicle is is going up and down like that. So so if it's bounced up, if the, if you can imagine now, so so that that's me coach in in sort of side view. But if you can imagine now, we're following the train. If the coach going forward, that's it pitching upwards and down. Likely it's hit something and bounce, and been launched upwards. So that's pitching movements. Um, uh, let's see. Du, 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 du the loss of so many bogies would have adversely affected the ability of the train to dissipate kinetic energy in a benign way by braking and by bogies running derailed through ballast. So any chance, you know, all of the f- way, all of the ways that you decelerate that train are by keeping it connected to the bogies, either by braking force on the wheels, which are automatically, you know, the brakes were, emergency brakes had been applied by the driver and were, um, uh, actually were they i think they were but it didn't reduce the speed very much i double check that in any case you know even if they had been or hadn't been brakes would automatically be applied as the first severing of the of brake pipes so brakes would be getting applied but more importantly the the larger deceleration force comes from the bogies digging into the ballasts going through sleepers shattering sleepers digging into ballast huge deceleration force but still a managed one one that's actually safe you know decelerating there was a voyager that was derailed at Cottonthorpe, uh, having hit a a car i think didn't it and uh, that you know that train hardly no one knows about that derailment because it didn't result in any severe consequences. The train, uh, the derailed train, dug into the ballast or the, on the bogie that it derailed, and it decelerated safely to a stop. You know, um, so this is consistently shown that when you keep a train upright, connected with couplers, and with atta- de- with bogies attached, you can decelerate a, a fairly severe derailment can can be decelerated fairly safely with that de- that safe decelerating force. So. Um, as a consequence of losing their bogies, coaches B, C, and D were also free to slide and roll in an uncontrolled manner. Attached bogies tend to resist sliding because they dig into the ballast. The detached bogies also became obstacles in the path of the vehicle bodies, and coach C is likely to have suffered some of its penetration damage as a result of striking detached bogies. Detachment of Mark III bogies uh, was also noted in previous accidents at Labbrook Grove and often Nervit. A study undertaken by RSSB to improve the understanding of accident survivability in relation to the structural crashworthiness and dynamic stability of rail vehicles in the event of an end-on collision concluded that... That was a mouthful. That's a bad sentence, folks. Under off-track conditions, there are more benefits to be gained in retaining bogies than allowing them to detach. So some people say detached bogies that's good, uh, because you reduce the overall kinetic energy of the vehicle... Um, that benefit is massively outweighed by the benefit of deceleration forces of of retaining a bogey and also of keeping a train in line. So we're going to jump forwards to to vehicle interiors. Um, Bearing in mind this is a fairly recent refurbishment, you'd expect the interiors to perform reasonably well, right? So Vehicle interiors. Uh, the vehicle interiors perform well in the derailment, despite the severe movements and rollover that the vehicles are subjected to. Great. So that, that's good stuff. Interior trim panels and light fittings generally remain detached, except in the leading half of Coach D. But even in this area, detached fittings did not encroach significantly to pasture spaces. So, you know, all that all that, that, that's stuff where we have learned. Refurbishment of the interiors, we understand train interiors far better. So to the best of their ability, Wabtec and, and, and their their subcontractors will have fitted. You know, the, those trains are far safer than the original Mark Three internal layout, you know. um. Uh, penetration damage to the left-hand side of coach c caused the seats in that area to be pushed in without detachment fully encroaching on the aisle space however because this vehicle rolled rolled over onto its roof the aisle blockage did not stop the three surviving passengers self-evacuating from the trailing end fine folding tables specifically looking at folding tables the folding tables used with the single priority seats at four locations in the first class coach were observed to have a particularly sharp corner when in the folded position this corner so this is an oversight in the design, this corner could cause injury to a seated forward-facing passenger in the event of a train collision in which they were thrown forwards into the table. The same folding table design is also used in coach B at two locations adjacent to wheelchair positions. In the coach B positions, it poses less of a risk to passengers passenger sitting in a wheelchair because of this, the side of the wheelchair frame would impact the sharp corner. When in the flat down position, no sharp edge is presented. No occupants were seated next to these folding tables or injured by them during the derailment of Carmen. So, so that's a, kind of a, a point to note. Ideally, the design would have not included this sharp, uh, this sort of sharp square, squared off edge. I think you can see it in the picture there with the arrow pointing to it. Uh, Oh yeah, I can do this kind of. I can wave it. You can sort of see where when it's folded up, there's a a sort of a sharp edge presented. Um, uh, The design of folding tail was first introduced into railway service by um, the Mallard refurbishment, so that's kind of been retained from the Mallard refurbishment by the sound of it. Dynamic testing of the seat and tail was carried out at the time to check compliance. Fine. the uh, requirement of the standard was that all areas which could be subject to foreseeable secondary impact shall be free of sharp areas. However, there's no evidence from the available records that the sharp corner was ever identified as a potential risk and the table design is certified for early use. So, uh, yeah, the table design was introduced into Mark III coaches in 2006 as part of the, the, the refurbishment project of the Mark III coaches. So the previous ones were for Mark IVs, this is for Mark IIIs, um, and again, wasn't identified as risk. The table design was introduced by WebTech into the ScotRail Mark IIIs, uh, scope of work did not include a crashworthiness review of the folding tables so they were continued as accepted to grandfather rights so this is a bit of a an issue here um yeah so yeah so they're, they're, they're not compliant with the latest standards there's a discussion of seatbelts mark three but we won't dwell on it mark three coaches fine they don't have seatbelts um other three da, 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 da. seat belts could have been effective in reducing severity of secondary impact injuries if they'd been fitted and worn by occupants at the time of the accident. Yeah, but there's been an open discussion about seat belts, and I don't, I just don't. Yeah. There's a whole discussion about seat belts, and we're just going to move on from it because seat belts are not, they're not, those are not the issue. You know, we've seen on by looking at Greerig and other incidents. Yes, the the, the one or two fatalities can not be caused by like people not being held in their seat, but by and large. Um, the interior of a train is, if, if, if a derailment, if, if a train is compliant with modern crashworthiness standards, um, seat belts are, uh, they're useful, but they're not, uh, you know, they're, they're outweighed by the benefits of other things like anti-climbers, improved couplers. So I'm mean, not going to dwell on it. Window breakage is important though. Breakage of body side windows usually occurs in high energy accidents when vehicles roll over, are severely damaged or are st- struck by debris. Mark three coach windows comprise a glazing unit installed within a mounting frame the main risk from such window breakages is that a hole could form in the side of the vehicle through which passengers may be ejected while the train is moving usually resulting in fatal injuries another risk is that broken glass can cause serious cuts and lacerations to passengers inside the vehicle yeah these are, these are key issues um uh, the, the windows were installed the, the windows on these mark 3 coaches were installed during a refurbishment in 2006/7 um they're designed to comply with a, another uh, kind of railway group standard Additionally, the windows were designed to meet a set of requirements that were issued in 2006 relating to passenger containment, following the lessons learned from after Nervit. So those additional requirements were subsequently absorbed into the current standard for body-side windows. Fine. Um, so, yeah, they're double-glazed windows. Uh, fine. Laminated. There's an inner... So there's a 5mm th- uh, thick outer pane, 6mm spacer gap, and a 7.5mm laminated inner pane. So tougher glass, toughened glass on the outside, laminated glass on the inside. The laminated pane is designed to provide containment of passengers in the vehicle as far as possible in the event of rollover uh, and passengers falling onto it. Okay, fine. Uh, in such circumstances expected that you'd get the thing where the glass breaks, but the lamination means that it still holds together as a, as a, as a pane. Uh, 22 windows out of 61 were broken, um, completely broken through, um, uh, as in completely gone, Uh after the after Carmen, and um, yeah, so you can see that it's like da 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 da. So there, yeah, it's just a bit of an explanation of the problems. Yeah, examination of the interior of coach D showed there had been significant ingress of glass dice from the broken windows. So these these windows, when they shatter into safety glass, they're the little squares of of glass when they shatter, and many large shards of glass. That's more worrying because safety glass shouldn't break like that. Uh, they have become detached at but they become detached from the laminated pane, So actually those shards, if it's safety glass to shatter, but it's not laminated, if it's laminated, then it can be shards. But theoretically the lamination should hold the shards, but that hadn't happened. Uh, both passengers who survived the accident in coach D suffered laceration injuries, which may have been caused by these pieces of broken glass. Okay. So here's an, uh, some images of, of what the, the consequences are. All the pieces of shattered glass. Um RIIB consulted Independent Glass, the manufacturer of the glazing unit, about the manner in which some of the linear laminated panes had shattered into large pieces rather than the, the small dice pieces uh, and then detached from the, the, the sort of sticky laminated layer. Um, the manufacturer explained that the additional passenger containment requirement, which was introduced after Often it uh, required the use of heat strengthened glass for the laminated pane rather than toughened glass, which would not have provided the required containment performance. Uh, yeah, toughened glass wouldn't have provided the. the Containment performance. The glazing unit was also constrained in thickness to fit within existing frames. Um, So the detachment of glass from the interlayer was caused by the distortion of the glazing unit as a whole after the laminated pane had been broken as a result of subsequent deformation of the vehicle structure. Okay. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, none of that's covered by standards particularly. Uh, The the manufacturer stated that the observed behaviour was pretty much as expected for the under these circumstances. Um, And the manufacturer advised RIB there may be scope for improving the performance. Um, further um, but that would require further research and the use of alternative materials okay fine right so that's all the description of um, uh, yeah that's the kind of the description of of the current issues but then the comparison with modern rolling stock this is kind of the the key comparison here Uh, and they go through a few features and pick out how how the performance of the behavior through the derailment might have been different had had a modern train been involved rather than the HST uh, some people said that the REIB were not looking at crashworthiness in any great detail, and were not in and and and, and I, I dare say the detail here, uh, particularly this section where there's a comparison with modern rolling stock, somewhat punches that false statement. But uh, whatever. Comparison with modern rolling stock. The investigation considered what might have happened if the accident had involved a train compliant with modern structural and crashworthiness standards. To assess if the overall outcome is likely to have been better or worse in terms of casualties. Okay um while it's never possible to be certain about what would have happened in the hypothetical situation with different rolling stock in the same accident the following paragraphs discuss the additional passive safety features modern trains are built with and whether these could have helped at carmen so they're being they are still being quite mousy with the um with with their wording but i think what you have to bear in mind the raib and the previous wording they are very softly softly they do not like being assertive about things it doesn't happen very often they don't they're not assertive about things so some of the wording we're about to read you know i've read this section quite a lot some of the wording we're about to read is this, is the equivalent of the rrb accident reporter standing on a roof and shouting it across london so um bear that in mind so lifeguards this is the, there's, there's gonna be a picture of some lifeguards in a second um, located in the front of in front of the leading wheels are intended to be the first line of defense uh, and so, you know, there, there have been previous accidents involving trains running into landslips. Um, uh, and, you know, here's Watford, You know, the, 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 an accident that, we've, that we've, I've talked about quite a lot. Have demonstrated that although the trains involved derail, modern lifeguards are generally capable of withstanding impacts with landslip debris on the track without complete loss of structural integrity. Um, we've already explored the fact that a modern lifeguard has over twice the ultimate strength of an HST lifeguard. Um, fine. The evidence from the lifeguards at Carmen is that they lost their structural integrity while running through the debris and were unable to perform a clearing function. Although a stronger modern lifeguard might have been better able to uh, to move sufficient washout debris out of the path of the leading wheel set to prevent the derailment, there's insufficient evidence. The RIB have insufficient evidence to determine the likelihood of this improved outcome, which I think is fair enough. I think it's difficult to say that a lifeguard would have made all that much difference. Um, so, that's the, there's also, okay, modern trains designed to um, railway group standard 2100 uh, with kind of low leading axle loads are also fitted with obstacle deflectors at each end of the train. Um, HST slightly exceeds that um, uh, axle load, but only by a little bit. They're quite light, lightweight, the HSTs, relatively speaking. Uh, more recent trains compliant with the TSIs um, have obstacle deflectors regardless of axle load. The purpose of these devices is to minimize the risk of derailment in the event the train strikes a large obstacle, for example, an animal or a car. Uh, yeah, cottonthorpe uh, comes to mind on the track. They are mounted off the vehicle body ahead of the bogey-mounted mount, lifeguards and span the full width of the track. It's unlikely that an obstacle deflector would have been effective at current because the depth of the washout material was too low to have engaged the bottom end of the deflector. Yeah, absolutely fair enough. It would have, would have made no difference in this particular inst- instance. Um, right, so this is where... This is where things start getting more uh, prescient, shall we say, uh, certainly more, more uh, uncomfortable to read. Modern trains are fitted with anti-climb features, either serrated pads fitted to the vehicle ends or built into the couplers, and energy absorbing vehicle ends to prevent override and uncontrolled structural collapse in collisions. Had the train been fitted with these features, overriding between the leading power car and Coach D is less likely to have occurred. And in such a case, survival space in the leading vestibule of Coach D might have been better preserved. So uh, I don't know if you've ever seen anticlimbers. They're, they're, like, uh, they're like little sort of – they look like teeth. They look a bit like that. And you'll see them at the end, on a lot of stop, they're just pads on the, on the sort of the body end. Uh, and they, they never contact each other other than if you have a situation where the, the vehicles are compressed together. And those – they look like teeth. And They're very strong, and they essentially just stop the vehicle from being able to override. You'll see them on all sorts of stock. Um, the yeah, yeah, you know, I think I've taken photos of, of, of anti climbers. If you just google anti climber, it, it, it shows up. Um, so yeah, so that, that, that they would have made a, made a difference. Generally, modern vehicles feature robust couplers, so now we're going to talk about couplers, which are better able to resist the large movements and bending forces which couplers are subjected to in derailments without failure or uncoupling. Although there are limits to the ability of couplers to keep vehicles together, evidence on coupler performance from the accident at Greyrig in 2007. Now, who was it who was saying that Greyrig is not an irrelevant comparison, and yet here we are with the RARB using it precisely. Indicates the, the stronger couplers are likely to have led to less vehicle scatter at Carmen. Absolutely. R.A.I.B. has considered whether in the circumstances at Carment, stronger couplers might have resulted in Coach D and possibly other coaches being pulled off the bridge by the leading power car. So the kind of the counterfactual, if you like, of if, they'd, if the couplers had been intact, what, might they have made things worse by pulling everything off the bridge. Uh, while this possi- possibility cannot be discounted, it is considered unlikely. That's the same as that's R.A.I.B. speak for uh, no chance. Um, this is because stronger couplers working together with anti-climb devices um, and energy absorbing vehicle ends would uh, should have prevented the overriding that occurred at the interface between the power car and Coach D, so that first power car coming off the bridge and then the coach behind it. Um, in the absence of overriding at this interface, the rear of the leading power car would have been likely to have remained coupled to Coach D. This would have increased the likelihood of Coach D continuing to run on its leading bogey and thereby providing greater stability to the rear end of the leading power car. This might have even been sufficient to keep the leading power car on the track for longer, increasing the likelihood of it completely traversing the bridge, still coupled to Coach D. Um, so, you know, there's a potential that it could have stopped that impact that that killed the driver, you know, the, the severe impact of the power car. If it, it could have dragged it. it, might well have demolished the parapet, but it would have could have kept the, the vehicle actually kind of kept it sliding over the bridge, but on at bridge at track level still. Um However, further jackknifing between the leading power car and Coach D beyond the north end of the bridge might still have occurred. Yeah, it's likely that having been kept in that way, it might have then dug in beyond the bridge and sort of still jackknifed. Um, so that's that's what couplers and anti-climbers could have, could have done to change the way that the, the vehicles behaved. Bogey retention now. Bogey retention is designed into modern vehicles by means of design load cases for body-to-bogey connections. Um which have been mandated uh, since around 1988, uh, so that bogies remain attached to the vehicle bodies as far as practicable in derailments and collisions. Fine, we, we've kind of discussed this already. Um, retaining bogies increases the chances of keeping vehicles upright and in line and minimizes the risk of jackknifing and vehicle scatter. Um, and, and, and again, so we've said that, we've also said additionally, as bogies run derailed, they dissipate the train's kinetic energy in a benign way by plowing through ballast. Therefore, bogey retention is likely to have led to a better outcome. You know, that's Again, that's like, that's like saying if the bogies had been kept on the train, this would have been a, you know, a, a much less severe uh, derailment. For these reasons, so, so kind of all the reasons that have just been discussed, this is the key sentence to the point where I'm going to put it back in the slides again later when we get back to our slides after finishing the report. For these reasons, REIB considers it more likely than not that the outcome would have been better if the train had been compliant with modern crashworthiness standards. There it is, that sentence, critical. Although any such comparison is necessarily subjective, a comparison with the derailment at Greyrig in February 2007 provides some evidence to support this. The nine-car Pendolino train that derailed at Greyrig, which was designed to modern crashworthiness standards, was carrying 109 people and travelling at 95 miles an hour. The ratio of kinetic energy to weight... To train weight involved in that derailment was around 1.7 times that at Carmont, and it occurred close to a steep embankment, which also adversely affected the train's post-derailment behaviour, causing some limited jackknifing and vehicle separation. One passenger was fatally injured, 30 people uh, received serious injuries, and 58 passengers received minor injuries. Um, so, essentially, that's making the grey rate comparison that I made in my int- when I, in, back in when I did the interim, looked at the interim report. Yeah, so i i'm not going to say more on that at this point we're going to talk about it maybe a little bit later when i bring up pictures from uh, gray rig again and remind us all why that why that comparison is relevant and is is really key to understanding the behavior of, of train vehicles at, at speed in in a derailment like this guidance of derailed vehicles so yeah there, there's a, a kind of a this section is about guardrails and i'm going to summarize this really quickly because basically they look at guardrails you remember i talked about guardrails in the interim report and the fact the standards are rubbish on them Um this report acknowledges the fact that the standards are pretty ambiguous but it does say that Essentially, I think it says it here. Yeah, it's showing that guardrails have been fitted um, after the accident. Guardrails have been fitted, uh, so you see the guardrails here in the in the forefoot, and you can see the gathering rails on the approach. These these sort of wing-shaped sort of rails, uh, kind of to guide trains in. But essentially, to entirely compliant with standard, indeed going beyond standards, the the distance. Yeah, so this is an extract from the standard, by the way. This is my 202. I use this a lot. This is my most used standard 202, probably more than handbook 49, in fact. And it just shows the standard is pretty ambiguous. It doesn't say specifically anything about where where guardrails are needed. Um, uh, But by the time we get to the end, there's a discussion here where it says that basically you'd have needed um, 35 meters, you know, you'd have needed an extra 35 meters of guardrail, which no standard would have ever said. So guardrails... Contrary to what I said in the interim report episode, actually guardrails wouldn't have made a difference in this incident. Um, they might have helped, maybe helped keeping things in, in line a little bit through the bridge. But the reality is, I don't. The, the, and the RIB concludes that it would have made limited impact on um, on the the consequences of the you know, the results of the um, of the derailment. Um, but we do need to improve the standards relating to guardrail uh, positioning. Absolutely. Um, so, now we're going to look at fires. So there are several fires that took place. Um, we're not going to dwell on this in great detail but because the fires were after the incident and didn't impact on, on, on the safety of anyone on board. But um, the, the power car came to rest and, and burst into flames. Um, so, there's, there's a bit of information about that. So, there's discussion of the fact the fire has caused severe damage to the engine compartment, uh, penetrated the clean air compartment, power car behind the cab, but did not penetrate bulkhead separating clean air compartment from the cab. So, it stayed confined to the leading power car and, and, and a bit of you know, foliage around, but nothing beyond. There's a fire in coach B. Now, this is more interesting. Because, why did this fire occur? Um, now, the reason this fire occurred is because of these uh, newly fitted auxiliary batteries located in a battery compartment. Um, they contained 48 individual lead-acid cells, uh, each of which contains two kilos of a, of a polymer, t- polymer material. Um, they're packaged in groups of four. Each uh, group is contained within a polymer box containing sheets of polymer honeycomb. The word polymer has appeared a lot there, you might notice. So um, In order to understand any possible contribution that the batteries may have made to the development and ultimate size of the fire, uh, lab tests um, were conducted to establish how the materials used in the batteries and associated containers reacted to fire. The tests showed that the polymer battery boxes and cell casing materials are easily ignited, sustain burning at ambient temperature, generally burn until little of the material remains, and burn with a comparatively high heat release rate. Oh my, none of that is good. How on earth has a battery cell got elements you know plastics in it that burn with that behavior really not good stuff um, and so that fire was very much you know you see the position of the battery box um the direction of the fire spread uh, yeah you that, that the subsequent spread of the fire was as a result the coach coming to rest on its right hand side on the slope with its trailing end uppermost this orientation meant that the fire naturally extended across the underframe and grew towards the trailing end of the coach okay yeah fine um so it gives an idea of, you know, that, that, that's something that needs to be revisited. Why, are we, why on earth are we... How on earth have we got to the point where we're buying batteries that are that dangerous? That's that's a serious uh-oh. Um, so there's a bit of discussion then. The, the report goes into looking at evacuation. And I don't think there's much to dwell on other than uh, looking at the, the way the fire impacted on evacuation. You know, the train was empty. The fire started a bit after the evacuation anyway. Um, so, yeah, there's... So you can see the fire here and the, and the impact that it had, but the, the, and, the, and the impact it's had on the interior, pretty substantial. But this happened afterwards, not good. But um, again, the fact the train was emptier certainly helps in this situation. Emergency egress. Um, yes, yeah, so this is discussing egress again. I'm not going to dwell on this because actually, the trains were so deformed, it's not really a particular point of you know a, a particular point to dwell on. So there's some other observations that the REIB made. And again, we're not going to dwell on these, but we've got... Because it's already blinking five past eight. Good grief. Um, uh, Simon's pointing out that we have ROGs and fire safety regulations for materials on passenger trains, and this somehow slipped through. Absolutely. Yeah, how many other similar items of equipment are there currently on the network? Really, really bad. Just really not not, um, not great. Uh, so so there's some observations about route proving... Um, Railway industry process for the operation of route proving trains were poorly defined and inconsistent because that's what this train essentially ended up behaving as. It behaved as a as a route proving train. So the speed that route proving is is enabled of uh, fine emergency communication. Uh, the, the the staff weren't trained that they could use the GSMR radio system to broadcast emergency information to other railway staff much more quickly. That was a that was a mistake. That was a, a training issue. Um, Earthworks inspections generally uh, network rail standards. Uh, Relating to the examination of mixed cuttings was open to differing interpretations and left a gap in the management of risk from soil components of mixed slopes. Um, yep, so that's a, that's, that's a, an observation that was made. Um, and an observation on the role of the ORR, which is interesting. The ORR regulates the rail, rail industry's health and safety performance. Fine. Um, it plans its routine work on the basis of risk and its analysis of where it can secure the most significant improvements in safety management. Fine. Um, so there's a bit of a stuff about effort management. Okay, so there's some stuff about the way that you are interested with effort management. Um, fine. We're going to hand through it. Construction activities, fine. Recommendation handling. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll come to this in the actual final report recommendations. So there's some other... Yeah. Um, so there's, it's, it's worth saying... Uh, yeah, there, there's, there, there, yeah, it's worth pointing out that there is a failure on a bridge... It's like two structures further north, right? Um, shortly after the, the failure of this bridge. So this was bridge 325. Uh, 328, uh, so three structures further up, sorry. Um, had a parapet failure. Uh, on the same line, just about a mile north uh, of the accident site. Um, and the RIB just wanted to point out, just explicitly point out, there's no such, there's not actually an overlap uh, in, in the sort of relationship between these two incidents, not at all. So... We've got our summary of conclusions of, of causal factors. We'll come back to. We we'll kind of we've got our own of these, so I'm not going to rerun re- this again. Uh, the underlying factors um, and the examination of the consequences. Uh, yeah, particularly the unusually low number of people on the train because of the because of COVID. It's a particular con- uh, help to reducing the number of fatalities. Uh, so, uh, some other observations. Um, so there are some actions that have been reported as already in progress or relevant to this report. This is so there's there's some stuff generally. Scott really said that it intends to change tra- uh, training for conductors working on HSTs, so it include entering the driving cab and locating the GSMR equipment. So that, that's good. So that's, that's happened. Uh, new drainage system was uh, was um, uh, was installed at Carment. So that's good. Guardrails were fitted. Uh, network rail stated that its project teams had started to review historical projects up to 10 years old to ascertain whether a health and safety file had been accepted uh, by nrg national records group and stored appropriately so they are so network rail um in scotland are doing that whether that's happening elsewhere i'm not so sure but in scotland that's happening um uh NR standard 02009 was updated and reissued. Um, so actually, this is interesting. So yeah, they updated I to RSE, um, intended to strengthen the management of technical queries raised during construction in the process for controlling changes to the design. So they've they've made that more robust. That 02009 is like the, the standard that runs how I do design, how I interact as a as a as a CRE. What my responsibilities? You know, they define what my responsibilities are as a as a as a responsible you know as a responsible engineer. Um, as a design lead and they re- define everyone's responsibilities so this is like the key one of the most important standards that we that we use in the, in, in the industry um, from a design you know, from a construction projects perspective so um, they introduced expanded uh, drain design requirements so that they updated um, uh, that was in 2018 fine and that sort of helped they believe but it doesn't explicitly state whether the consequences beyond flooding should be considered okay yeah, so there's so there's a load of things that are being done. You know, there's 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 changes. Network Rail have reviewed a few, there've been a few audits. Um, uh, so so yeah, generally some stuff there. There's some tasks. The, the two task forces that came off the back of this report. So the the weather advisory task force and the earthworks review. Um, uh, the earthworks task force. Um, two reports that were published off the back of that, fairly substantial reports. Uh, we're not going to go through those as page terms, any time. Uh, you know, but they're 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 worth looking through in your own time. Um, so they're worth looking it'd be good to I mean if we could get Dame Julius Slingo in to, to, that'd be interesting I w- we'll want to get some Met Office some people yeah it'd be quite interesting if we could get uh, either of these you know the, the chairs of these task forces in onto Nata, Nata that'd be good but uh, I don't know are, are we that important who knows um, feel free to email them and ask uh, duh, 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 duh. neither task force was asked to investigate the accident in any detail but their findings do Im- are informing Network Rail's ongoing asset management processes yeah fine okay so, we get to the recommendations. Uh, there are quite a number of recommendations uh, in this report. The first recommendation, number one, is uh, it recognizes the evolution of, the, of, of, of processes since the, that drainage scheme was constructed, and it's to ensure that the, um, the current process, uh, yeah, basically it's to say, network rail should review its contractual and project management arrangements to identify effective measures to reduce the risk of contractors modifying a design and ensure timely provision of accurate records key things number one recommendation the number two recommendation is that network rail should take steps necessary to ensure that all elements of infrastructure constructed in scotland since 2012 um, are included in the appropriate asset management processes Um, extend the time frame um, to include work constructed before 2012 on the risk management basis Um, determine uh, the extent to which similar steps are required on network rail infrastructure outside of scotland And conduct an audit review uh, covering the implementation of existing arrangements to identify, report, and correct asset database management and data quality issues. So this is kind of an asset management database uh, recommendation. That's uh, recommendation two. Recommendation three. Um, Network rail should review and update its drainage-related procedures so that the output from the design process takes full account of likely impacts on railway safety due to flooding and or debris washed from drains and or surrounding ground. Fair enough. Recommendation four, AMI and network rail should jointly review the way that they are implementing the, recommend, the requirements of uh, CIV 65, uh, network rail standard, um, that relate to mixed cuttings and the reporting of incomplete examinations. So this, 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 this lack this confusion about where the, the inspection sort of remit stopped and how much they needed to um, inspect. Recommendation five, um, is uh, in parallel with the implementation recommendation for network rails technical authority should evaluate the adequacy and ways of improving the clarity of Civ 65 um, requirements that relate to the examination of mixed cuttings. So, again, this is, this is related, to, related to inspections. Uh, recommendation six um, is network rails should uh, review and improve its processes for mitigating rainfall related threats to the integrity of its earthworks and drainage infrastructure. Recommendation seven this is a chunky old paragraph. Um, Network Rail, in conjunction with the train operating companies, should review the capability of route control rooms to effectively manage complex, widespread, and unusual situations, such as abnormal weather conditions and multiple infrastructure failures. So that's the the management, the team management, the crisis management recommendations. Now, um, uh, likewise, management assurance system. Um, op, uh, you know, Network Rail uh, should undertake a project to improve the way its management assurance system operates um, in relation to safety critical functions. So this is about staff uh, kind of uh, competence. Recommendation 9, network rail in consultation with the ORR should review the effectiveness of recent changes to its processes for ensuring that appropriate actions taken in response to safety recommendations. Okay, fine. So that's a a, a network rail ORR combined. Make sure that you're doing what recommendations from the RARB say you should be doing to avoid missing things that have been suggested. Recommendation 10, um, so again this is uh, about mitigating controls for failure so network rail should undertake a detailed and systematic risk assessment of the mitigating controls that relate to weather related failures of earthworks drainage and structures fine recommendation 11 is uh, where network rail assisted by the rssb and uh, rdg who they um, should um, determine the objectives of the operation of route proving trains so this is basically, yeah, this is about route-proving trains. Uh, so it's identify hazards which staff operating such trains are expected to identify, uh, circumstances in which route-proving trains should be operated and and how they should be operated, including things like train speed and the effect of reduced visibility. So, yeah, it's a bit of a, you know, that, that HST was acting as a route-proving train and it should really have been running under caution. It's not the fault of the driver or the signaller, but, you know, the, the, the processes were not sufficient to ensure that, that it was known that it was a route-proving train and should therefore have been running. Uh, at caution so long-term strategies well this is going to get ignored isn't it then uh, recommendation 12 is about the uh, rail delivery group network rail in conjunction with rssb considering and incorporating the learning from common into the assessment of rolling stock and infrastructure design features that can provide guidance to trains when derailed so basically this is about improving where we propose things like guardrails you know um, uh, robust curbs these sorts of things, uh, strength, you know, reinforced reinforce parapets. Recommendation 13 uh, is about, um, again, it's about guardrails specifically. So the previous one was a bit more broad. This is a bit more specific about guardrails, fine. Recommendation 14 is um, stating that owners of HST power cars should investigate the feasibility of enhancing the strength of the bogey-mounted lifeguards as close as is as, as reasonably practicable to modern standards. Um, so, they're saying, please, for goodness sake, um, uh, enhance the lifeguards if you can, because they could make a difference. Recommendation 15 is um, talking about bodyside windows. We talked about lacerations and cuts, so that's the recommendation of that. Recommendation 16 um, this is about angel trains uh, looking at those folding tables to try and get rid of that sharp corner um, and ideally and, and replace them, uh, provide a time within which those are going to be replaced. Recommendation 17, um, so this is, yeah, so this is basically, the RSSB should review its previous research on fitting secondary impact protection devices for train drivers. Okay, so that's a bit of a, RSSB should do that, nothing's going to come of it, frankly. Recommendation 18 um, is that owners of Mark three coaches and other rail vehicle fleets susceptible to significant levels of corrosion. This comes back to stuff that, that you were saying in the chat, folks. Um, that they should develop and implement a time-bound plan to review vehicle maintenance and overhaul plans, um, and uh, confirm that there are you know, uh, amend, you know com- basically look at corrosion and ensure that it's not a threat, that it's not a problem, and amend vehicle maintenance and overhaul procedures as necessary to take account of these findings. Yeah, fair enough. So, recommendation nineteen. This is the this is the key one that uh, that people that the unions rightly jumped on. Operators of HSTs in consultation with train owners, ORR, the DFT, uh, Devolved Nations Transport Agencies and the RSSB should do the following. Three things stated here. First, assess the additional risk to train occupants associated with the lack of certain modern crashworthiness features compared to trains compliant with modern standards, um, including taking account of things like corrosion. Uh, This assessment should include a review of previous crashworthiness research, a review of previous accidents, consideration of future train accident risk, the findings presented in this report, and any relevant engineering assessments. So, thorough, it should happen. So this should happen, and it hopefully should be published. Based on the outcome of uh, and and cost-benefit analysis, raised eyebrow, identify reasonably practicable measures to control any identified areas of additional risk for HSTs and develop a risk-based methodology for determining whether, and if so when, HSTs should be modified redeployed or withdrawn from service there you go and in consultation with operators of other pre-94 rolling stock develop an issue formalized industry guidance for assessing and mitigating the risk associated with the continued operation of hsts and other types of mainline passenger rolling stock designed before those modern crashworthiness standards so recommendation 19 is the one that, that is sort of saying in a roundabout way Think a bit more hard about whether HST should still be in frontline operation. Recommendation twenty. Uh, yeah, I, Graham, I absolutely share your sentiments on this. Just you know, electrify uh, and get new trains out there to just avoid this rinse and repeat cascade nonsense. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I'm going to dwell on this point a little bit in the in the slides because I think it's, it's it's relevant to look in detail at, at that and at some of the other factors at play in the in the particular choices ScotRail made on that front. Uh, recommendation 20 is about those batteries you know it's about what it's basically the RSS, it's the raib going what the hell is with those batteries what the hell guys uh, so that's good um and there's a learning point here so there's a little learning point for everyone just one learning point which is railway staff are reminded that if available and they're trained to use it gsmr radio is normally the most appropriate way to communicate urgent safety information to signalers. so there you go it's just a, a key one because it would just go straight to the the, the nearest signal box um, HSTs are already in museums. That doesn't say a lot for whether they should still be in frontline operation, does it? Hmm. Anyway, so that's the report. The appendices are, you know, there's a glossary. There's uh, some, some stuff. There's this particular disruption schedule. There's the accident sequence that we've seen. You know, we've, we've looked at the... Um, we've got the videos that we'll look at again. We've got the... Actually, it's interesting. They've broken the... Normally this is within the body of the report, but you can see that this this, this goes into some detail and kind of specifically talks about what has, is happening, where, and, and at what point, um, yeah, we'll, yeah, you can see couplers failed and all sorts of failures, and it's just, it's a mess, isn't it, um, following the bridge, the, the jackknifing, the, yeah, yeah. What a mess anyway we'll we'll, we'll remind ourselves of that and damage to, to the bridge so this is looking at the actual bridge the track and bridge so it's just the detailing it's interesting this stuff is normally within the body of the port where they've pulled it out which is kind of fair enough because it is slightly tangential so you can see that there's some sleeper damage and some impacts to the the track and, and you can see the mess here and the, the fire still blazing photo taken pretty soon after the the, the 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 crash actually it's pretty horrifying um here's a drawing of where the the the, the tracks were in relation to the parapets originally uh, so you um ah not originally so that's from 1980 that's just a, a hand sketch that's been done in 1980 i should have recognized the style of the, the handwriting it's comic book text um this is shortly before the accident uh interestingly this has literally been taken just before the accident showing like, of a picture of the bridge it's a strange story we're down there remember the story or sort of one some of the heroes of the piece because their their staff immediately got involved trying to they, they already like uh started trying to create a makeshift. Um, they're trying to create a makeshift track to get access for people to get access to the to the train i think they were using they were using they're putting fires out themselves they're helping people just you know here is the piece really um there's the damage to the bridge the repairs that happened afterwards uh, yeah, there's the repairs you see they're fairly hasty uh, not particularly sensitive repair but fine it doesn't matter. It's 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 doing exactly what it needs to do uh, some major scar protection works going on at the bottom of the structure here. So you can see this is elevating the where the river, the, the water flows. So that's happening. Historic land drainage issues. So this, sort of, this is this is stuff we've looked at already. Um, analysis of de- water and debris and uh, weather forecasting and uh, previous occurrences. Uh, Bridge 328, just showing this happens. Remember this happened? The, the whole parapet just fell off. Really not good. Just fell off. But it was unrelated. Mostly unrelated. Um Yes, so fine. Uh, drainage design, okay. Railway standards that were used, and that is the end of the report. We've done it, folks. Whew. Um, hopefully, that was. I know it was very detailed. Oops, I know it was very detailed, but hopefully that was useful as a way to, you know, that's that's a lot of hours of us going through the report in a lot of detail, it's slower than if you just sat and read it yourself. But hopefully, in the discussion we've had, in the chat, we provide a bit of context. Um. Yeah, so uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there are some interesting people going. Uh, where's the money coming from to fund this new stock? Uh-uh, uh-uh. That is, that's that's no, 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 no. I mean, firstly, uh, it's not safe. We should be replacing it. The cost should you know the, the the stock is bad stock anyway. Let alone it's its unsafeness. But that's missing the key point about this particular crash. We'll get to that momentarily. So. What are the three Cs? A reminder of the three Cs. Um, they're, they're the things to remember of the, le- the key learning from this from this report. Three Cs: CDM regulations, crisis management, and crashworthiness. We're going to start by reminding ourselves very briefly about the CDM regs and what that actually means. So, a reminder that um, is this is a video that's going to play. Where am I? Is it is it working? That's the next question it is but weirdly it's not playing why why is it not playing it should be playing play uh that's annoying wait a minute i shall fix this by getting the uh, uh and do this and do this and just go there that should fix it right No, why is it doing this? I it, oh, it's fine. I, I'm gonna press. No, that's very strange. Why is that not working? Oh, it's possible because it's a very slow video. So it is actually playing, but I just, let's stick with it. I'm just getting distracted. Um, oh yes, okay, so here's the funnel. Uh, and and the so this is, this is the CDM regulations. So it's reminded this to do the drainage. So there's that funnel and the washout, and then what was replaced and that bund. And the, what the bund did is focused all that water until a very heavy flow rate, which then um, so you can see there's that bund that was just randomly added, um, flowing into the drainage system, which then washed out essentially. So the the bund focused the the water and ended up in this in this in this sort of flood. Kind of washout. So you can see what's happening here is that the the, the extra flow from the bund has washed the material out, um, and then resulted in that big uh, pile of debris. Kind of um, adding in and, and you can kind of see where that washout has occurred, and the debris uh, and the debris down here. So there it is washout. You can see where the train ran through it. You can see that all the material. Um, and how did that happen? Well, it happened because of a, a fundamental, you know, you see the consequences of it. Sorry, there's, there's the consequence. You can see the position of the, uh, you can see the position of the, uh, where's OBS, I need OBS up. Position of the, of the washout and then the train derailment. You, you, you've seen this picture a few times. This is from the Eden Express, I think, uh, this picture. Um, and CDM regulations. So firstly, this is, you know, this relates to the regulations themselves. They were updated in 2015, originally introduced in 2007. Um, The CDM regulations, 2015, and those define the responsibilities of people involved in in construction projects, right? And network rail, there are a series of standards from a track perspective, but kind of so. So overall, there is this business process standard, which uh, is basically the link between the the HSE legal instrument, the, the, the CDM regulations and network Rail's processes. This is the way that those processes are interpreted. From a from an engineering perspective, the, pro, the the actual standard that we live and breathe is 02009. It's this one that I've just put up. Engineering management for projects. Um, this goes into the detail of the responsibilities of, of individuals and organizations or or parts of organizations in relation to construction projects. This is not followed, which is why the problem um is why the problem occurred. You know, this is this is why it happened. And then for a track from a track perspective, our standard that then ties into 02009 is 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 TRK 2500 and that then goes into details about what specifically a CRE for track does, how we relate to the to the, what's now the the route engineer. Um, so these are the four sort of documents that are that are worth having a hold of um, and understanding as 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 engineers uh, to understand this process. You know, um, so the drainage standard is actually CIV sixty five, uh, but again that uh, sorry CIV sixty five is the design is the actual design standard, but the the civil um, engineering assurance arrangements for the design and construction of um, of civils assets. I don't know what the civils one is actually, but um, certainly from a track perspective, track used to be drainage, now it isn't. Drainage is now civils, so I don't exactly know what the civils standard is, but um, this is the track one. Um, CDM, Construction Design Maintenance Reg- uh, Management Regulations two thousand fifteen, is the legal framework within which construction projects sit, and they and it's about defined roles about who's responsible for what. Um, that's what CDM is, uh, David. So um, there's, there's there's all episode on explaining CDM, and to be honest, just go into the Wikipedia article because it explains it in, in in neatly explains what that structure is and, and and the responsibility of the client, the contractor, the designer, you know the uh sort of the, the relationship between designer and contractor is very clearly defined. Um, it's very clearly defined what what a contractor can and cannot do, and what a designer can and cannot do, and 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 where those lines you know and and how those boundaries between those organizations cannot be blurred. Um so that's that was the CDM regs. Next we're going to look at crisis management because um we know that there were um we know there were lots of issues going on. So there were you know we've got the focus here of the fact that the tra- the, the train was re- used to root proof, which was um which was fine, but the standards weren't rigorous enough about what root proving meant for the train. But also um before the crisis management, you know, before this, there were all sorts of incidents popping up around Scotland. And they were not being managed correctly. The, the 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 process by which these were being managed was not correct. So, um, so it's you know this is a key key load of learning, and it's a bit wordy and not easily represented in an image. But there's obviously a lot of learning about that the crisis management failures um, in in the report that we've gone through. And of course, fundamentally, crisis management is only ever more critical with with climate change. You know, climate change is meaning that we're having more of these events happening. So crisis management is absolutely critical. The 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 tr- the, the behavior under crises under extreme weather is uh, is is absolutely uh, is only going to become more critical as as, as our cha- as the changing climate means more extreme weather events. I was in fact teaching about this a few hours ago with for the PBI. And the last point of course um, is crashworthiness. Now there's a lot to learn you know the, the, the primary cause is CDM regulations and crisis management absolutely key that we pick things up and I'm not suggesting that crashworthiness is somehow more important than these but it's a thing that um you know that the, the the failures the infrastructure side failures the failures of the designers the failures of the contractors um are well explored i think everyone can agree on that where there is disagreement and which is why i'm going to go into this the crashworthiness thing in a bit more detail um is is in relation to the hst and the continued running of the hst which is why i think it's relevant to, to look at, at this in detail um not a huge amount of detail we'll be finished quite soon actually but this i just want to pick out some points here so this is a quote from Stan Robinson, uh, sorry Stan Robertson, um, the Chief Inspector of Railways from 1998. Mark One trains are now 25 to 30 years old. In normal everyday use, they do not pose unacceptable hazards. However, they do not meet modern crashworthiness standards of construction. Um, quite a straightforward statement about Mark One trains back in 1998 that they were up to 30 years old. Um, you know, the same absolutely applies for Mark Three coaches. It's absolutely key. Um, you know, Mark One trains were outlawed. Um, well, they were told to be got rid of after Clapham, and they hung around for quite a lot longer after that. Really, we should have been much. I, I, I think that there is a bias within the the. Yes, the Mark Three coaches are much safer than Mark Ones, but they, by comparison, they are, they do not perform well in. They have not performed well in several crashes. After Nervit they performed dismally. You know, they performed really poorly. You compare them to other incidents where uh, you know, other trains, if another train, at, at not an HST but a, a, you know a, a Voyager or, a, um, or a, an IET, had been in the same circumstances, it's very likely it would have performed very differently in that in that crash. And that was not drawn. The, the 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 report did not make that point vigorously enough. And 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 I think that's to the to the it's 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 really not. To the credit of the of the authors of that report that they did not reflect some of their personal views about the hst more more vi- vi- vigorously in, in that report um so it's right let's just quickly remind ourselves of some of these facts about the, the the kind of the three passenger coaching stock uh, or the four passenger coaching stocks being run or the three the three so the mark one coach retired from mainline service 2005 54 years after introduction mark two coach retired from mainline service in 2012 49 years after introduction Mark three coach still not retired from mainline service fifty years after introduction. Its time is up, folks. This is a museum piece, and and it's kind of like, you know, these these are the are the kind of the key points that, that that we've already looked at in, in here. You know, the the anti climb features absolutely critical. The robust couplers critical in the behaviour. if the couplers have behaved properly. The chances are that there are reasonable chances that the severity of the incident would have been massively reduced by the in the way that the the vehicle would have decelerated more more kind of in a more controlled manner. The power car may well have not dropped off the bridge and hit and struck the embankment as severely, which could have um, you know changed the forces on that vehicle. You know, the, the impact this paragraph particularly goes into the impact, the, the benefits or the, the negative consequences of how poorly the couple has behaved. And after Nervit was pretty explicit about how poor the couple has performed. Um, likewise, bogey retention. After Nervit pointed out that bogey retention is a serious flaw with the, be- the behavior of the Mark 3s and that this could have had a, a, a seriously beneficial impact on the behavior of the, of the train. These two in particular are, are absolutely key for that. And this is why... This is this is precisely why the RAIB have made this explicit statement that they consider it more than likely or not, than not that the outcome would have been better if the train had been compliant with modern crash crashworthiness standards. This is why this has been said explicitly. And as I said, this is the equivalent of like this is the equivalent of the loud hailer um, off the off the top of the roof. You know, this is this is a very loud statement from an for RAIB in the in the um, in the way that they word things. So. What is this? What are we looking at now? This is rig And you can see that rig was a seriously severe incident, you know. Uh, we go back, you know, Greyrig, they, they they're picking out rig here. Why are they picking out Grey Rig? Because actually the behaviour the, the, the incidents at Grey Rig and, and Carmen are eminently comparable. Lots of fe- factors um, that that are similar between the two incidents. And you can see the difference in behavior you you can just it doesn't take much to sort of compare the two and and see the difference in performance. Uh, of the two, you know, of these two incidents. You know, the the the, behave, the way that the particular... You know, look at the behaviour... This coach here just completely destroyed. the, Rolling up over onto its roof. The bogeys everywhere, just buried in all over the place. Compared to Greyrig where um, retained bogey, retained bogey, bogey retained. You know, bogey retained here, bogey retained. Massive difference in the performance of the vehicles. Massive performance. Also, uh substantial forces through the cab the driver was seriously injured uh you know the the, the driver of the of the gray rig 390 was, was seriously injured but you can see that the, the the body of the of the of the cab exists it still exists there is some crash crash structure protecting the driver from being tossed uh to this you know onto the embankment amongst a, a load of shattered fiberglass you know it, just the comparison of uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I don't have a picture of the, the there are other pictures showing where the cab ended up and it's pretty horrific. And again, like let's look at these this force. Let's let's get it in my mug um, and just very quickly look at this table that I did from the last report from the last from the interim report thing. Right. So the speed at gray was 95 miles an hour. The speed at car was 73 miles an hour. It's not just about that. As David, as you rightly pointed out several times, it's not just about speed. It's about the rate of energy dissipation. And we didn't know that when the interim report came out. We do now know the rate of energy dissipation because we know how rapidly the vehicles decelerated. We know that the the vehicles decelerated in nine seconds at Greyrig. They decelerated in 15 seconds at Carment. We know that the the energy involved at, uh, you know, the report itself is explicit about that the, the, there was 1.7 times the, the energy to, to train mass ratio um, th- that's what they drew attention to in the in in, in the report the RAIB drew attention to in the report um, we can see that you know there's 421 megajoules of energy um, of the of the grey rig train 145 of the Carment train you know the, the train was slower and weighed less right at uh, Carment. so combine that with a, with a a slower deceleration overall you have a substantially reduced rate of energy dissipation at Carmen. You know, the Carmen involved only about twenty one percent of the average rate of energy dissipation as at Greerig. And yes, that's an average. So that's not picking out the fact that there will have been spikes of acceleration and and, and energy dissipation. But likewise there will have been at Greerig. You know, that, that the, the initial vehicle struck OLE masts, you know, uh, you know, there 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 was, there were other things, the the embankment was steeper. Um so so you know and, and and this is not like they're n- nominally similar. And it's only a, a slight difference. There is a substantial difference between these two. Um, between these, you know, there, there's a huge difference. Carbon involving only twenty one percent of the average rate of energy dissipation is a massive difference. So grey rig more energy, dissip- higher rate of energy dissipation, and substantially better vehicle performance. And it's worth then just just kind of looking in specifically at the at the summary paragraph about this because because they really they really reinforce this point uh, in the RIB really reinforces this point in the report. A train built to modern crashworthiness standards would have had a number of design features that are intended to provide better protection for occupants and keep vehicles in line should they collide. So it's the anti-climb features, the more robust couplers, and the bogey retention features. These are the three key features that the HST just lacks. Um, it was designed and constructed before the standards came into force the HST and um RIAB considers it more likely than not that the outcome would have been better if the train had been compliant with modern crashworthiness standards so they're rewording it but they're being explicit about that let's kind of remind ourselves of the of the way this of ha- the, the, the kind of the, the 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 progress of the report and how that would have influenced things so i'm just going to click out of here to just say so at this point, so the the emergency brake was applied. So you can see, the emergency brake was applied here. Um, I'm just going to do this again. So, uh, actually, I'm going to go through this again. Yeah. So at this point, the I'm going to just wibble. Actually, I'm going to do this, and uh, we're going to go back and watch this again. So, um. If I click on this, does it pause? Oh, yeah, it does. Good. Right. I'll do that then. So uh, the train comes along, it strikes the der- and it derails here. And at this point, this is where um, there's not really any difference. The train is derailing, but the, the way it's derailing, it might have swung slightly less um, with the couplers. But actually, I think the report earlier states that less. You know, the, the the trouble is this cess is quite low, so the vehicle is naturally rolling to this side. But the striking the parapet end... This is where the lack of a strong coupler and the lack of anti-climbers and the lack of um, crumple zone at the end of this coach, if this at this point this is severed, these two these are now two separate trains essentially moving in different ways, and um, if this is maintained, then this is where it's saying that the the. the the, um, the rest of the train could have kept the power car in line and stopped it from rolling off the off the, the train off the bridge like this. it would have kept it in line here the momentum would have pushed it forwards without it dropping off the bridge which would have avoided it having this this collision with you know, this dramatic collision with the, um, uh, with the with the embankment. The other thing worth noting is um, as the train comes along here you can see so um, we're just going to watch this through again. So the train comes off, if we're watching now, the point at which you can see these, the, the vehicle at the end, this is striking the embankment and, and jackknifing, again, if, these, if, the, this, if this train had remained on its bogey, it would not have struck the embankment in quite the same way as it had, it would have been bedding into the ballast, likewise, immediately you see the lifting of these vehicles has meant they've come off the bogies immediately. So this is an example. Where you can see if they'd stayed on their bogies, if the bogies had been retained, they'd have been digging in. The extra mass of these bogies would have held the vehicles, the the, the bodies down. Um, it's it's just um, yeah, it's it's quite clear that the you know, that this is a serious a serious contributor to the severity of the incident. Again, that means that the vehicle threw over here, dug into the trees and the embankment, and meant that the there was another jackknifing incident and another sort of lateral force being applied to the vehicle so this this train is spreading all over the place because of the oh, you can't see me gesticulating wildly. It's spreading all over the place because of the the coupler weakness and the bogie lack of bogey retention these are these are this is fundamental um i can see the trade energy is being substantially dissipated at this point um but it's not you know the story's not over the pushing of the of these two coaches then over the top of the of the uh of of this this coach here then means that that coach got obliterated you know it got crushed it's really not a good state of affairs um and i think it's quite you know it it doesn't Watching that animation over and over again you can see the severity of you know where things like uh anti-climbers uh crumple zones uh stronger couplers and uh bogey retention would have reduced the severity of the incident combine that with the fact that um the train was pretty much empty and it gives you a feel for, so yeah, to combine that with the fact that the train was empty, you, you, you know, it doesn't bear thinking about if, the, if it was outside of COVID times or if it was more recently. It's just, yeah. The HST did not cause the crash of Carmen. I'm not suggesting that. No one's suggesting that in their right mind. But it did in all likelihood result in it being a fatal derailment. That's the statement I'm willing to make given the evidence that the IRB have put forwards willing to stick my neck out and say that this wouldn't have been a fatal derailment had another vehicle, had a modern train been involved and that's how serious this is right Another key point as I'm saying to draw attention to is is the fact that um, you know uh, the idea that you know this question would the consequences have been worse if more people were on the train? The RAIB are explicit. They say the circumstance of the accident and the resulting movements of the vehicles was such that with normal passenger numbers, the casualty toll would almost certainly have been significantly higher. Again, that's like, RAIB. for the REIB. that is as assertive as they could put that wording. They're basically saying many more people would have died if it wasn't for the fact that COVID had kept this train empty. There's another point that I want to make. You know, we've just had, we've had a few people in the chat going on about, um, you know, what about other rolling, you know, a lot of people were, were saying when I was talking about Crash weather, it's like, oh, what about all the other Mark three rolling stock? What about all the other pre-1994 rolling stock? And other people saying, oh, replacing the HST fleet will be costly. Well, those are both kind of straw man points because that's not really what's at question here. The the, the challenge that I'm making here is that, you know, oh yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of other points that are made broadly around this idea. The point is that Scotrail had a choice. They made a choice, you know, whoever it was within the organisation, whether it was from uh, Transport Scotland, or whoever it was, based off that stupid survey that asked people in Aberdeen which train they prefer to take, um, and and interpreted it as rather than interpreting the train with more seats in it, they thought, oh, it must be because it's an HST and so procured HSTs. Absolutely monumentally bad interpretation of data. But anyway, Scotland made a choice, right? And they made a choice to spend as in amongst all of their role, their overall rolling stock renewal, they spent uh, bellio spent uh, 475 million pounds on their, on their fleet renewal, including HST. So that's not the total cost of the HSTs on their own. I think the HSTs was 54 million, but the overall cost, including the HSTs and the new trains was 475 million, right? Bear that number in mind because it's, uh, somewhat relevant, uh, I'm just going to change uh, whether my, where my cursor gets captured. At. Sorry, just doing a bit of uh, admin. So, now I, I did a bit of a Twitter thread um, fairly recently looking at what um, what the cost might have been had ScotRail gone with new trains. Because a lot of people are saying, oh, it would have been so much more costly. If ScotRail had gone with Stadler flirts, and the, bearing in mind that they, the flirts hadn't, weren't such a well-known entity, quantity at the moment, but if they had, the cost of the fleet renewal... And I can provide the sums. they their on Twitter thread. The cost of fleet renewal would have been six hundred and thirteen million. Um, uh, these are all in 2015 prices, by the way. The cost of going with IETs would have been six hundred and seventy-one million. Now, this is a this is not a huge extra cost. This is about thirty uh, percent. Uh, it's thirty percent, and this is uh, this is about forty percent, right? So, for between 30 and 40% additional capital expenditure, they could have not got HSTs. They could have gone with a train that has a longer life expectancy because these were only expect the HSTs were only have a, life, a shelf life of about 12 and a half years. Um, so, they could have gone for um, getting rid of HSTs. They could have gone for a train that would have lasted through electrification, could have been, you know, the flirts and the IETs are, are you know, bi-mode potential vehicles. Um, so there was a choice made, whether it's by ScotRail or by the Scottish government, by Transport Scotland, by uh, MSPs, uninformed MSPs, but people lobbied for a bad choice to be made. And ultimately, the people responsible are the ones who made that choice, right? Uh, oh, yeah, just to remind everyone, that's in 2015 prices, not in current prices. So... It's also worth just reminding ourselves about uh, what this, you know. So yeah, the refurbed the refurbished H, the refurbished, HSTs, refurbished HSTs had a 12.5 year lifespan. They have a 12 and a half year lifespan and they're incompatible with electrification. Flirts or IETs have a 30 to 40 year lifespan, which is compatible with electrification. So for 30 more lifespan, so so for 30% more cost, you'd have got 30% more lifespan. Yeah. So for me, this feels like a very bad decision was made right a really bad decision was made and it had severe consequences it didn't necessarily have to there's this but in this case it had severe consequences and and, and this is not me pointing a finger at, at scott rail this is this is not me saying that they're that they're in some way culpable or negligent or any of these things what it's saying is we need to think hard about data and think hard about the consequences of decisions we make. I was lecturing today about sustainable railways and about the fact that every decision we make has long-term consequences um, about railway sustainability and broader sustainability. So, um, uh, yeah, people, I, I'm being kind. Yeah, current saying looks like more than 30% lifespan. looks like double the lifespan. Yeah, I'm being kind of kind to it, even if there's more lifespan. Like, yeah, it's like 12 and a half versus... Yeah, it's almost double the lifespan for 30% more cost. So, yeah, you're right. It could actually... right. Um, I can even type that right now. Uh, there we go. Everyone, I've done it. I've, I've fixed it for you. I've, I've corrected my slides. 50% plus more lifespan for 30% more cost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, oh, that's a good. Yeah, that's a good. All oh, percentages, yes, into a, make it 140% plus more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good point. That's a that's a good point actually. It's about one hundred and fifty percent more. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There is. Um. Yeah, let's 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 correct this. My, I'm talking about data and stats, and here here I am screwing up my percentages. I think you get my point. For a lot more lifespan, not much more cost. Right. Um. So this is my point that I that I believe vigorously in. Um. Uh, yeah, also with the flirts, which are better, frankly, than the IATs for the simple fact that they provide level boarding. Um, the HSTs should no longer be in regular service, either passenger or freight. Sorry, um, intermodality, but I don't think HSTs should be running as freight trains either. Um, I know it's because they're cheap and they're out there, but frankly, the, the, the power cars are not safe. You know, Swap the power cars out, keep the Mark 3s if you like, but I, I'd prefer them to just go and, and safe modern rolling stock be procured instead. So... Carmen, the three C's at Carmen: CDM regulations, crisis management, and crashworthiness uh, are the things that we need to remember. And you know, these these are. It's really important that we take the lessons away. I think the key lessons to learn and take away are the CDM regulations and crisis management stuff. For, from from me as an engineer, the CDM reg stuff is by far the top of the list of things that I personally can learn from. But. Crashworthiness is something that we as an industry and frankly as a commentatoria need to be more careful about because when the scrap, the power cars were being procured, when the, the, the HSTs were procured, some people wrote pieces decrying the unions for challenging whether this was a, a good idea or not and suggested that they were as good as modern trains that no one would be able to tell the difference and actually were quite assertive in talking down dissenting voices about the, the HSTs and whether it was such a good idea to, to to introduce them versus others. And I think the people who write favorably about them need to have a little think about where HSTs sit in their own minds because I think there's a lot of ca- a case of people who are writing about these trains see them in a certain point as being modern because that they were modern when they were, when they were kind of for the generation of people who are writing about them. And they need to just step back a little bit from that because they are actually... As old to 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 the world now, they are as old as Mark One coaches. You know, they're in as they're as dangerous as Mark One coaches in operation. You know, so we just need to just just need to have a think about that. Um, and, and there are lots of people who, who stuck there who were who are shouting rather aggressively at me when I talked about crashworthiness of HSTs at the time. And I'm sorry, but the RAIB report has just vindicated what I was saying at the time um, because current was a mess it was an absolute tragedy it was a human tragedy it was an engineering tr- disaster it's it, hopefully we've learned a lot from this uh, there's a lot of learning a lot of recommendations hopefully this this series of, of matters has been a good way to pick through i don't know maybe this hasn't been everyone's cup of tea but hopefully it's been a valuable exercise i just yeah i think it's been useful to to pick up, pick through what we can learn from what we can these are iconic trains right um but their time is past, passed they're museum pieces they should be consigned to a museum and and it's also worth just just a quick mention for the rirb investigators you know it's some very very good good work you know it's a very it's a good report it's an exhaustive report i think it's a really good piece of, of work that should be looked after in great detail you know and, and and sort of heeded by everyone across the industry and it provides us some serious tools as engineers certainly to push back on things like drainage corners being cut things like oh can you just quickly do that bit of documentation don't worry about as bills that sort of thing really um yeah really good stuff from an engineering perspective stuff that I'll take forward and I've already used in my in my day job so this is available on all good podcasting platforms it is't it you know for the audio only people I don't know how well this has worked for you in audio only form but uh hopefully some some useful points made it does work better as a graphic medium I, I promise you but for those of you who do just listen hello um slash gas Dennis to 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 make more of this happen, to support this stuff to happen. Um, the, the, the merch, the merch is out there. masketcouk slash collection slash rail You can all go and, um, uh, sponsor, uh, uh, we, we, we definitely need to abolish the treasury mug to send to Rishi Sunak. You can do it Buy it off the website, put bubble wrap around it, or, or rather when it gets delivered to you and you know, it's from Masquet, uh, Wrap it in wrapping paper, stick the treasury address on it with Rishi, Rishi Sunak's name on the top and send it over to him. Let him receive it. Hopefully he'll tweet about it. Uh, PayPal.me or, or Instagram it or whatever it is that Rishi Sunak's brand team does for him. PayPal.me slash me. and then for more of the chat, discussion of all sorts of things and hints about upcoming uh, re, reboots to series or, or relaunches of, of previous series that I'm quite excited about, uh, go to the Discord server, garethdennis.co.uk slash Discord. Um, do it. Next week, next week's episode is episode 114. Um, we're revisiting an old format. You remember the just what structure should Britain's Railways have anyway? We're going to revisit that format and um, have a think about Because I was having a discussion while I was meeting people and talking, meeting Network Rail's Head of Buildings and Architecture. It got me thinking about branding and about how GBR might be branded and how, 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 how that branding is going to interact with current branding, particularly the devolved cities and, and countries uh, and nations. So we're going to look at so just what branding should Britain's Railways have anyway. We're going to do it. We're going to have a look at this. Um, lots of questions. So so that's that's the next week's episode. We're going to go to Big Face. Hello everyone. Um questions at me in so I can see your questions. HST trains is asking about the Mark 4s. The Mark 4 the Mark 4 coaches are um, they include not all but a substantially larger number of crashworthiness features compared to the mark threes but they are you know again they're, they're the mark fours the thing with the mark fours is that their days are kind of numbered anyway by the fact that they gauge a bit differently to the mark threes so um they're uh yeah um they are that there are fewer there fewer fewer of them about and um yeah so uh, but they include features that the you know the couplers are, are better than the Mark III couplers, for example. They, in the instance they have had, they've been shown to perform better than Mark IIIs uh, did. So, yes. So so that's Mark Mark IVs. Um, all of the where are we? Let's see. Any any other questions? There was a question. Yeah, that's a question about Mark IVs. Um, uh, yeah. That's 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 that. That's, I've seen all the questions. Oh wait a minute. Will Tucker. Do procedures for route-proving trains now preclude use of trains which don't meet current crashworthiness standards? I don't know. I'd, that's a good question. I don't think so, actually, because that would preclude like all Class 37s and all of the yellow trains and everything. So no, I don't think so. Um, and it's more about running at caution, running in a way that allows if it's a route-proving train, then run at caution. So if you spot something bad, you can stop in advance of it, or or certainly stop before the consequences become severe. Um, yeah. Do I, I? I never say hit the like and and share or no subscribe button stuff because it's it's irritating and, and i i enjoy not saying it but it is true do do click a like because you know the algorithm not many people watch real matter believe it or not uh in terms of compared to people like jeff jeff pulls in the big numbers uh, i don't pull in big numbers it's a it's a it's a niche it's a niche thing real matter but you're all a very dedicated group and i uh, I, and I love you all very much so um Oh, the hst trains yeah hsts are fine for charters mark one's running charters like charters are fine people get onto a charter train knowing and accepting the risk that they're in an old train that's quite reasonable tom was asked um why was the train not ordered to run at low speed so we ran we kind of went through this a couple a, a couple of episodes in this series ago didn't we um the route the rule book doesn't require it you know uh, uh so not only does the rule book not require it but the the signaler the, the weather had improved there was an understanding that, that there had already been issues identified. So, that, and, and trains passing, the the the, the sequence of um, of events was such that you could understand, with the weather having cleared, that the drivers, the driver and and the signaller would have a sense of, right, we're just getting the passengers home now. We're, we're kind of running the railway. We know that there have been failures here, there, and everywhere, but we we reckon between here and Stonehaven, it's clear. On you go. So you can understand from a kind of a behavioural you know, kind of a behaviour and a, and a psychology perspective why you know, there was no mandatory reason for them to, to run at caution. So you can understand why they ran in the way they did. I think we went, even went through this in the interim. Um, uh, David Shepherd doesn't uh, thinks that charter trains can still crash into other trains and think scrap them all. Well, the charter industry is fine. There are a small number of trains that means that the risk is substantially reduced. People, yes, yes, they they could run into the trains, but actually, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I don't think I, it's nice to have charters running around on the rail network. You know, Mark One, Mark Two coaches with a steam train at the front, it's fine. I'm fine with that. And like HSTs, HSTs fall into that category. I'm fine with it. Um, yeah. So it's um, it's it's nearly been a two-hour episode, but it hasn't been a more than two-hour episode to to please those of you who uh, don't like it when it goes on super super long. It's time to to, to, to put a close to it, I think. And um, the way that I want to, the, the way that I really want to to close this off is is really to to actually just sort of. Uh, in fact, if I go back to, uh, if I go here, is just is really to, to 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 spare a moment to just think about, to think about Brett McCulloch, to think about Donald Dinney, and, and to to think about Christopher Stutchbury, um, to to to, to, to sort of spend a moment thinking about them. Uh, the people who are impacted by this, um, their families, their friends, the, the the people involved in the rescue, um, those who are on the train uh, who did survive. To, to have a moment thinking about that. Um, and I will see you next week. Um, cheerio, everyone.